On fire is our theme. And uh, I guess when you think of fire, there's lots of different kinds of fire. There's bushfires, very common in Australia. We know how powerful they are. There's uh, volcanoes, another kind of fire. My, uh, my daughters have had a chance to go to Vanuatu and uh, climb a volcano. And um, when uh, one of my daughters came back, she was showing our family some video of, uh, of this trip along uh, dusty roads in the back of Ute. And they were covered with dirt by the time they got up there, climbed up. And there they are looking over the rim of this active volcano. And, and while we're watching the video, it suddenly shudders like that. And uh, we said to our daughter, what, what happened then? She said, oh, this glowing rock just landed near me and we jumped out of the way. And my mother-in-law, bless her heart, are there safety rails there? <laughs> no, no, this is a real volcano. But of course we think of fire as the sun as well, the power of the sun. And, uh, you know, what an incredible source of fire and source of life it is. As we've been looking through stories in the Bible and, uh, and learning more about being on fire and how fire is used in the Bible, we think of some of these amazingly powerful things, um, leading the whole nation by a pillar of fire, the, uh, the prophets on uh, Mount Carmel and this amazing story that Samuel spoke about a few weeks ago, um, fire in the altar uh, in the temple that Pam spoke about last week. They have some incredibly powerful stories. But our story this morning is, is not one of those big, powerful kinds of stories, though it is powerful in its own quiet way. Because fire can also be like just a small candle. Um, this warm glow, this, this intimacy that sort of draws us in, uh, that has this sense of, of peace about it, of, of just sharing and just being uh, in a special moment with a person. And our story this morning is that kind of story. It's that quiet, personal, personal, intimate touch. And uh, it's to do with Isaiah, who was an Old Testament prophet. A little bit of context for those who like history. Uh, So the book of Isaiah was written about 740 BC, which was about 500 years after Moses, about 200 years since David and uh, Solomon, kings of Israel, and about 100 years since Elijah. And uh, I thought, I wonder what else was happening around the world at that time. And it was about the time that the first Olympic Games were held. Uh, a little bit of trivia. There was one race only. It was a 192-metre foot race, and it was won by a cook. There's a bit of trivia. It's around about the time that the city of Rome was founded. And for those who like ancient literacy... Uh, literature rather, Homer wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey. So that's what was happening in the world around the time that Isaiah was alive and he was writing. Now at that time, the king's name was Uzziah, very like Isaiah, but King Uzziah. And he was the king of southern kingdoms of Israel. The Bible tells us that he followed God and was a good and effective king. His armies were strong. And he kept the powerful neighbours who would like to invade Israel at bay. He even developed some new weapons. He fortified cities that they had and built new cities. There was plentiful supplies of food, great herds, farms, vineyards, political stability, financial strength. And one commentary says that after David and Solomon, he was probably the most 
influential and outstanding king and his fame even spread to Egypt. In 2 Chronicles, the Bible says, as long as he, that's King Uzziah, sought the Lord, God made him prosper. So that's the context around the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah has more prophecies about Jesus than any other book in the Old Testament. And also it's the book that is referred to and quoted more times by New Testament people than any other Old Testament book. The central message of the book is that God will restore his people to him. God is absolutely dependable and it's foolish to trust in anything or anyone else. And a key verse talks about Jesus' birth and his name being Emmanuel, God with us. So into that context, let's begin. Chapter 6, verse 1. It was in the year King Uzziah died that I saw the Lord, full stop. Now there's a story to be told there as well. We will get back into the verse in a moment. King Uzziah died. King Uzziah was 16 when he became king and he reigned for 52 years. He ruled well. But because it was such a prosperous time, the people became complacent. And there's a real lesson to be learnt just in that and there's a real trap that when things are going good, we can become complacent. That our worship can become mechanical that we're just here at church because that's what we do on a Sunday morning. The people had lost their real heart for God because things were going well. And why do we need God when things are going well? There's a danger that we can enjoy all the blessings of God but lose our heart for God. If there's one message to take away this morning... That it is that we should seek after God and not the accessories that go with the package deal. It's God who our hearts have to connect with. The Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 6, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. And the people of Israel at that time looked at all these things that had been added and forgot to seek after God. We have to be on fire for God not on fire for what he can do for us. If we go back to a few chapters in Isaiah, chapter 1, Isaiah writes, Listen, O heavens, pay attention, earth. This is what the Lord says. The children I raised and cared for have rebelled against me. Even an ox knows its owner, and a donkey recognises its master's care. But Israel doesn't know its master. My people don't recognize my care for them. Oh, what a sinful nature they are, a nation they are, loaded down with a burden of guilt. They are evil people, corrupt children who have rejected the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. So that's what was happening at the time. They had turned their hearts from God. But sadly, it wasn't just the people who did that. Even though Uzziah was a wonderful king, he became proud of his efforts. 
And he had an attitude of supremacy that put him above any rules and regulations. This is a dangerous place for a person to be. You can read about this in 2 Chronicles 26. But what happened was that the king went into the temple and he decided that he was going to go into part of the temple that was reserved just for the priests to go to and he was going to burn incense to God, which is a job that just the priests were supposed to do. But because he had become proud of all that he achieved, he decided that's what he would do. Now, the chief priests and 80 other priests tried to convince Uzziah that wasn't a good thing to do. It's not right. You're taking something that's not yours to do and making it right in your mind, but it is not right. Don't do it. He didn't respond kindly to that and went ahead anyway. And while he was there holding the incense, the priest noticed that on his forehead there's this white flaky skin. And it was leprosy. They rushed him out of the temple. He decided that was a good thing to do at the time. But he developed leprosy. He was banished from society, spent the rest of his days in a leper colony and died. What a tragic end to an amazing king. All because he got to the stage where the rules didn't matter. He was above the rules. He could do what he wanted. The point is that the blessings of God can blind us to the need for ongoing faithful obedience. We have to be so careful in our lives. We can thank God for what he's done. We can look back and see what he's done and we can be grateful to that. But realize that we still need to be faithfully obedient to him. He hasn't set us up in some way where we're above the rules and the regulations. So at the beginning of chapter 6 then, there's a predicament. Isaiah the king has died. The nation has known prosperity, but they've wandered from God. You've got neighbours pressing in, wanting to take their land. The king shamed himself. Died in a leper colony. But to add another layer to that, Uzziah was the cousin, sorry, Isaiah the prophet was the cousin of Uzziah the king. And Isaiah actually had a role of being a scribe in the king's court. So it was his job to journal all that was happening. And it was a rather privileged and prestigious position. So for Isaiah the prophet, not only was the nation now in a bit of uncertainty, but he'd lost his job. And his cousin had wandered from the path and was dead. So things for Isaiah had certainly turned around. What would you do? What would you do in that situation? Or perhaps a better question to ask is, what have you done when you've suddenly found your life turned around? The things that you knew that were stable, that gave you a sense of security, the people in your life who you could depend on and trust, if all of that's turned around. And I know for some of you that's happened. What do you do? What have you done? Do you start looking through the, uh, the job ads in the paper or online? Do you uh, go to counselling to get help? Um, do you talk with a trusted friend? 
Do you decide to pack up and move to another town? Do you look to invest somewhere else because one investment hasn't worked? These are all things that could be done. But what have you done? Do you know what Isaiah did? He simply drew close to the presence of God. That was his response to all of that. And I often wonder, did the removal of that earthly king and that shake-up of what he knew cause him to step up in his relationship with God? To shift gears in terms of seeking God. And that's my encouragement to you this morning. That when you find yourself in that situation, let that cause you to shift gears. And to take a step closer to God rather than to pull back. We haven't even got to the fire yet, have we? But there's so much to learn just from that part of the story. Let's go back to it. Chapter 6. It was in the year King Uzziah died that I saw the Lord. So this is the prophet Isaiah writing. He was sitting on a lofty throne and the train of his robe filled the temple. Attending him were mighty seraphim, their angels, each having six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. They were calling out to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Their voices shook the temple to its foundation, and the entire building was filled with smoke. Then I said, it is all over. I am doomed, for I am a sinful man. I have filthy lips, and I live among a people with filthy lips. Yet I have seen the King, the Lord of heaven's armies. It's interesting, in this part of the chapter... Isaiah is using the word I and referring to himself for the first time in the book of Isaiah. The first five chapters, he talks about the sinful people. He uses words such as you and your and they and the people when he's pointing out how they have strayed from God. But now in chapter 6, he's talking about I. He's talking about himself. And he became aware that he too was a sinful person. It wasn't just his role to bring a message to a sinful nation, but he was part of this nation. That there were his own things in here that were unholy. And that he needed to identify with the people. For the messages he was giving were as much for himself as they were for the nation. It's because God's holiness exposes our sinfulness. And with that vision that Isaiah had standing in the presence of a holy God, he suddenly realized how sinful he was. At the moment at home, we're having our house repainted on the inside. And the job's not finished yet, but you can see what the painter has done next to what he still has to do. And doors that were painted when we moved into the house some 26 years ago, they look pretty shabby. He's painted part of the ceiling and you look at the rest of the ceiling that looked fine and realise how shabby and old it looks. And that's what happens when we stand next to God. His holiness and his purity exposes our sinfulness. And I guess if we were literally to be standing next to God, what part of our life would look shabby? For Isaiah, it was his filthy lips. 
and being part of a nation that had filthy lips, I suspect every aspect of our lives would look shabby. Have you ever felt like Isaiah did? It's all over. I'm doomed. How can I possibly be worthy in the presence of God? God who is righteous and holy and just and loving and forgiving and full of mercy. And me who doesn't have those things. How can I possibly live a life worthy for God? But the good news is it's not the end of the story. God is about redemption, not condemnation. And when we come to God, we don't need to come with this fear of never being worthy. And the truth is we never will be worthy, but because of his redemption, we can come into his presence. So God's holiness reveals our sinful nature, but it also heals. It reveals and it heals. Let's go back to the, uh, the passage. Verse 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal he had taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. He touched my lips with it and said, See, this coal has touched your lips. Now your guilt is removed and your sins are forgiven. That burning coal, that holiness of God, touched Isaiah and made what was sinful and filthy and worthless, now pure. And that was a new idea in the Old Testament, where it was thought that if you touch things that were impure, you became impure. But the idea that a holy God would touch you to make you pure, flip things on its head. Previously, you couldn't approach God unless you got rid of all those impurities in your life. But now God's saying, come to me as you are, I will touch you and I will make you holy. You're not to be destroyed by God's holiness, but, by, but instead be transformed. I like the fact that Isaiah's lips were touched by the coal. He was talking about his filthy words and God purified that. But more than that, I think touching him on the lips was a symbol of the intimacy that God wants to have with us and with him. Who's ever touched your lips? I can think two categories of people. People who love you dearly or the dentist. And that's probably about it. I don't know that there's anyone in between those two categories of people. God loves you dearly and that intimate touch that he wants to put on your life, that little candle, that little fire that glows in those quiet, still, personal moments is something that he desires with us. The cleansing of Isaiah's lips had an immediate impact. We go back to the scriptures. Isaiah says, Then I heard the Lord asking, Whom should I send as a messenger to the people? Who will go for us? I said, here am I. Send me. Now I find that bit quite humorous. Maybe it's just the way I think of things. I'm imagining this amazing vision, this temple. And there's God seated on this huge throne. And you've got these six-winged angels flying around. And then you've got one other person, and that's Isaiah. 
And I can almost imagine God sort of giving one of the angels a bit of a nudge in the ribs and say, watch this. Um, well, who will I send? There's only one person there. And I can imagine Isaiah looking around. Um, pick me. I know that just appeals to my sense of humour. But the thing is, Isaiah responded straight away to God. That he recognised himself as someone who was sinful. He identified with a sinful nation. God touched that sin. His holiness purified it. And he says, who will go? And Isaiah said, yes, I'm the man for the job. And I think back to when I was speaking with you last about Moses. Moses was called by God. And when God called him in that burning bush, Moses focused on the task. He reacted to the task. But God, what if Pharaoh doesn't believe me? Um, But God, what if the people won't follow me? But God, I I can't speak. But God, what if he changes his mind? He reacted to the task where Isaiah simply responded to the call. He wasn't even sure what the call is, but he said, yes, I'm in. And I think that's a really important thing we need to consider. That if we feel that God is calling us to a specific task, that we respond to the call and say, yes, pick me, rather than react to the task. Because if God knows the task that he has for us, if he calls us to something, he'll know that he can empower us to do all the things that we have to do in that task. We don't need to be concerned. We don't have to worry about the what-ifs and try and have it all planned out beforehand. All we have to do is say... Here is the call. Yes, God, I shall respond to that calling and not react to the task. And after Isaiah signed up, he was the only one in the room, God tells him a bit about the task. Now, Isaiah had already been prophesying, been speaking to the nations, trying to bring them back to him. But God tells him, go and say this to the people. The people are going to listen carefully, but they won't understand. Watch closely, but learn nothing. They'll harden the hearts of these people. They'll plug their ears and they'll shut their eyes. That way, they will not see with their eyes. They won't hear with their ears, nor understand with their heart. And turn to me for healing. So God is saying to Isaiah, they're not going to listen to you. They're going to block their ears. They're going to harden their hearts. They're not going to turn to God for healing. But he's called Isaiah to go and speak to them. I said, Lord, how long will this go on? He replied, until their towns are empty, their houses are deserted, and the whole country is a wasteland, until the Lord has sent everyone away, and the entire land of Israel lies deserted. If even a tenth, a remnant survive, it will be invaded again and burned. But As a terebinth or oak tree leaves a stump when it's cut down, so Israel's stump will be a holy seed. So God's saying to Isaiah, it's going to be like you're hitting your head against a brick wall. Hearts will be hardened to the message, but eventually some individuals will listen. That was that comment about the stump. There will still be life in that stump. God is saying to Isaiah, the truth has to be declared regardless of the response your job is to keep speaking it out don't be turned aside by the response or the lack of response that you get he was being called to minister in a new way 
Now, Isaiah had already been ministering. He'd already been prophesying and talking with the people. But now there was a new level. That fiery touch of the coal on Isaiah's lips, that cleansing of his heart, was something new that would give him a new direction. So it was a recommissioning for new times in the nation's history with the king now dead and uncertainty coming. There was a recalling. So in simple terms, Isaiah's experience was coming into God's presence, confession. God, I am sinful. I cannot do this. I am not worthy. Confession led to a cleansing. God saying, your sins are forgiven. I will purify you. And that cleansing then led to commissioning. Confession, cleansing, and commissioning. Cameron, can we get that image of the flame back on? So the call that Isaiah had, that intimate touch from God, is also for us. And it's not one of those big, powerful stories. It's small, but just as powerful. And as we're thinking about being on fire for God, let's be open to what he may do in a mighty way with a whole nation of people or a whole church community. But let's also be open to what he wants to do just in those small, flickering, quiet, intimate moments as well. We read in 2 Timothy 1 and 9, For God saved us and called us to live a holy life. He did this not because we deserve it, but because that was his plan from from before the beginning of time. To show us his grace through Jesus Christ. I'll get the band to come back up as I finish. I wonder what aspect of, uh, of this message you most relate to. Could it be the mechanical worship of the nation of Israel? That everything's pretty good. Things are going well and you've acknowledged that God has been with you on that journey but there's no real need to go any deeper. And you just do things because that's what you always do. I want to say to you that God's call is not a once-off call, that he desires us to step up. How different is your Christian experience today to two years ago, to five years ago, to ten years ago? Can you say that it has gone up a gear over that time because of God's calling for you? Some people think that um, you come to God and you give him your obvious faults. The things that you know uh, are not right and are a little bit of a nuisance in your life. And we'll get God to deal with those. And when he's done those things, we're fine. Thanks God, we uh, appreciate what you've done. We'd like to be left alone now. One author talks about our lives being like a house with obvious faults. Perhaps it's a a leaky roof. Um, Perhaps it's a blocked gutter. Um, Maybe it needs a, a repaint. And we're happy for God to do those things. But if God calls us to do a whole house renovation, 
to uh, totally dig up the garden and change it all around. We're saying, well, hang on, no, 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 I didn't sign up for that. Just do those few little things that, that need a repair. And maybe it's that God is calling us to a total renovation. Saying it's not just these little bits in the life here. There's so much more of your life. Perhaps you can relate to King Uzziah. A life of service, knowing God's blessing, but taking advantage of that and heading towards what isn't yours to do. What isn't yours to take? Because there's this sense of, well, I've worked hard and I deserve it. So it doesn't matter if I can bend the rules just a little bit. I don't like the word deserve. If people say, oh, yes, you've worked hard, you deserve that. Well, I think, no, we deserve nothing. And that passage from 2 Timothy reminds us that. That God's grace and holiness and forgiveness is not because we deserve it. We can never get into a stage of life where we think, yes, we've earned it, we've deserved it. Perhaps you more relate to Isaiah in that need for confession and cleansing. And I wonder where you feel you need that personal touch, that intimate moment with God, that cleansing, that holiness. Do you need, like Isaiah, that cold to touch your lips? Is it what comes out of your lips? Is it what you don't say that you should say? Do you need that coal to touch your thoughts, the attitude that you have towards people or towards things? It's a poor attitude and needs to be cleansed. Does that coal have to touch your actions, the things that you do? Are they unholy? Has that coal got to touch your habits, your eyes, what you see, how you interpret what you see, your ears, what you're listening to? Perhaps that coal has to touch our sense of fear and cleanse that. You know that King Uzziah died of leprosy. People who had leprosy were shunned. Jesus walked to the lepers. He walked into those leper colonies and he healed them. He didn't just touch them, he healed them. If you need healing for anything, Jesus can do that. Perhaps the part of the, uh, the message that you respond to mostly is the way that Isaiah responded to the call of God. And I wonder if there's anyone here today who senses his calling from God And they're doing that whole, well, what's it about? How can I? It's too scary. I can't do it. If you're being challenged, if God is calling you to something, don't react to the task. God will equip you. Just respond to the calling. God wants that intimate moment with you. So you can confess. So he can cleanse and he can commission you or recommission you for your service for him. Let's just sing our final song. As we do, you just reflect what is your response to this? Isaiah's response was, I'm doomed. God said, I cleanse you. Isaiah's response was, 
Here I am. Send me.